This is Andrew Womack, and this is our third tape out of four in a series that we have entitled Lessons from the Christmas Story for Every Season. We've already dealt with quite a bit of material on this. We talked about events concerning the uh, miraculous birth of John the Baptist and how that he was really essential. The Old Testament prophecy was that if uh, he didn't turn the hearts of the Jewish people towards the Lord, that instead of the advent of Jesus being a blessing, it could have been a curse. He could have smitten the earth with a curse. And so we talked about that. There were some great lessons to learn. We talked about the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus and how Mary conceived, and we applied that towards how we conceive a miracle. And I consider that to be one of the most important lessons, principles that the Lord's ever taught me from the Word of God, and I believe it's been a real blessing. On this tape, we want to examine the birth of Jesus, and specifically, we're going to talk about how that um, Joseph learned about this and the faith that was involved on Joseph's part in this whole situation. Also, if we have time on this tape, I'll talk some things about uh, the wise man that came to visit Jesus, and there's some things to learn out of that. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is the only gospel writer to record about Joseph and his reaction when he found out that Mary was pregnant. And I find this very interesting. I mean, to have your fiancé come up and uh, say that she was pregnant, but it was a virgin birth, that she hadn't been unfaithful, you know, that is just hard to believe. It really is. And we talk about the faith of Mary and how she was favored and blessed, but Joseph was no slouch. Joseph was a mighty man of God, and Joseph had God speak to him, and Joseph used a tremendous amount of faith. And so I really uh, respect Joseph in this whole thing. And it's just amazing to me that only one out of the four gospel writers presented Joseph and what happened with him. Matthew is the only one to record this, and I'm really glad that he did because this gives us some great insight. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And in verse 24, Matthew 1, 24, it says, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now there's some things here that uh, I believe are very important and things that will bless you if you will just open up your heart and receive it. Going back to verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, 
before they came together. That's talking about before there was physical relationship. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 19, it says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. That's talking about divorce. Now, this is quite different than our culture. And uh, I believe that the Jewish culture was rooted in the traditions that God had established and that it's the better take on what marriage and engagement and things like this should be. Notice it says in verse 18 that Joseph was only a spouse to Mary before they came together. This means before they had sexual relationship. I could spend a lot of time here talking about a lot of things, but you know what? They were not sleeping together as is a common practice today. Now just think about this. If they had have been unfaithful, if they had have been promiscuous, having sexual relationships outside of marriage, as is so common today, did you know that it would have excluded Mary from being one that God chosen, chose for the birth of the Lord Jesus? Now, you could take this and make a lot out of it. Again, this is a kind of a subplot. It's a side trail. It's not one of the main focuses on the birth of Jesus. But yet, you know, they were living a godly life. If they had been living an immoral life, it would have excluded them from this. And I believe that God loves us in spite of our actions. I believe that there is grace, mercy, and forgiveness. But you know what? Your actions can exclude you from some things that God wants to do with you. For instance, if you become a bank robber, if you are a notorious crook and liar and thief, you can be forgiven And you might be a preacher, you'd have a great testimony, and you could do some great things. But you know what? Probably you are never going to be hired as an accountant for somebody or something. You know, Jesse James would never qualify as the church uh, accountant. Even though he was converted, and if he was completely forgiven, and if everything was fine, that's just not the kind of person you put in there. His reputation would void the ins- the instructions of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the people you put into leadership have to have a good report of those that are without. So all I'm saying here, again, I don't want to make more of this than what is in Scripture, but I am saying that, you know what, they were obeying God, they were living a holy life, they were seeking God, and because of this, it put them in a position where God could choose them to be the uh, mother of Jesus and Joseph to be the uh, stepfather, the surrogate father of Jesus. And uh, it put them in that position. If they had been unfaithful, unholy in this deal, you know what? They wouldn't have been chosen. So here they were only engaged to each other. They had not come together physically, sexually, But notice in verse 19, it says, Then Joseph, her husband. Now, this is another comment on uh, culture and on the way marriage should be handled and stuff. When you are engaged, it was as if you were married, all except that you didn't consummate the marriage. There was no physical intercourse, no relationship, but it was considered marriage. Now, again, that is not the way that our culture looks at it. Engagement just means that you have made a promise, but our In our culture, a promise doesn't mean very much. Even a contract isn't binding if you have a good lawyer. And we just have changed some things, but that is not right. Not only if you don't go through with the wedding, but even if you are engaged, that is a major, major commitment. And I think that this is one reason we have a lot of problems in our 
marriages today you see such a high divorce rate is because they are entered into flippantly. It is not a major commitment. If people would think that, you know what, this is just like marriage, asking them to marry me, I am making a commitment. We may not have consummated it yet. It may not have a legal piece of paper. I may not have to go through some of the things that you would if you were already married. But in my eyes, this is it. Well, I guarantee you, you wouldn't uh, be so quick to throw that out and make that invitation, that kind of a commitment, if if you looked at it as a real commitment. You know, my wife and I, we were raised in a denomination that uh, didn't preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a lot of these kind of things, but they did preach salvation. And then, really, the next most important thing after salvation, according to the doctrine we were raised in, was uh, who you married. And I mean, it was until death do you part. I remember my Uncle Safi. My dad died when I was 12 years old. So my Uncle Safi, which was a nickname for him, but uh, he pulled me over to the side when I brought my wife down to East Texas to meet all my relatives. He pulled me over to the side and he said, boy, you're a Womack. And he says, this isn't Sears and Roebuck. If you don't like her, you can't bring her back. Womacks don't get divorces. That was his way of saying that, you know what, this is a real commitment. Are you willing to make a total commitment? And, of course, I was, and praise God, our marriage has stuck for over 30 years now. But I'm saying a lot of people don't look at it that way. Joseph did. Mary did. Even though they were only engaged, it was as if they were married, and Joseph was going to divorce her. And according to the law, if you found your fiancé had committed adultery on you, you were free to stone them to the to death. And Joseph could have done that, and that certainly was done in this culture. And it was a culturally acceptable thing. But instead of stoning her to death, it says that he was going to put her away privately so that she wouldn't be made a public spectacle. He not only wasn't going to stone her, but he wasn't even going to divorce her in a visible way. It was going to be something that they hushed up. He was going to just take care of her. Now, this says a couple of things. This says, number one, that even though Joseph was probably hurt, it was obvious by his first reaction here that he didn't understand or believe the virgin birth. He thought that she was unfaithful to him. That's the reason he was going to divorce her. I'm sure he was hurt, but instead he uh, he was hurt, but he wasn't bitter. He wasn't angry. And I think that that's important. You know, a lot of people who are only self-centered and only thinking about themselves would have become angry over this. I've got a great teaching on this entitled um, Strife. That's just the total title of the tape. But this tape on strife talks about from Proverbs 13:10, only by pride comes contention. Many people would think that if you found out that your fiance was pregnant, that you would be justified in being angry and everything. But you know what? The only thing that makes you angry is when you think about selfish, self-centered things. If you really loved that mate, that potential mate, the person you were engaged to, more than you loved yourself, then instead of thinking about revenge 
anger and things like this, I think you would think the way that Joseph did. Because he was a just, godly man, he was still going to divorce her. That means he was going to take care of her. He was he was putting her apart. He felt like that she was defiled, and he didn't want to enter into that. He had kept himself holy, and he wanted a godly wife. He wasn't going to participate in it, but he wasn't going to shame her. He wasn't trying to get even. He wasn't angry. Man, this says a lot about Joseph. It says that he was not a selfish person. Now, I'm sure he had a self, and I'm sure he made mistakes like all of us did, but Joseph was a person who really loved God. Joseph had some character. Joseph thought more about Mary in this situation than he did about himself. And you've got to remember that in their culture, to have uh, to be pregnant outside of marriage was a tremendous shame. Again, punishable by being stoned to death. Certainly divorce was acceptable, etc. And it, it was a shame not only to Mary, but to Joseph. And Joseph could have been angry over that. But instead, he was thinking about Mary, and he was willing to bear the brunt of this and just divorce her and not let people know what had happened. Possibly send her away somewhere and uh, allow her to have the child, and then she could return, and and uh, people wouldn't even know that she had had the child. Apparently, I don't know if there was things like adoption, similar to what we do today, and things like that. But in other words, he was thinking about Marion. So that says a tremendous amount about Joseph. Notice also in this 19th verse, it says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. Verse 20, but while he thought on these things. You know, this is a tremendous deal. It said, while he thought on these things. You know, it's amazing what would happen instead of us just being hurt and making rash judgments if we would think on these things, if we would think about what's going on. I tell you, that is really really important. You find in uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26, the scripture says, ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. And of course, this same principle is repeated hundreds of times in the Bible, but it basically is just saying that, you know what, you ought to make decisions not based on emotion, but based on maybe the emotion can cause you to come to a place where you have to make a decision, it might be involved, but it should not be a determining factor. Now, again, this is something that is so subtle, some people miss it. But again, this speaks great things to me about Joseph. Joseph thought Mary had been unfaithful to him. Because of that, he was going to divorce her, but he wasn't going to shame her. He was going to do it privately. He was thinking more about her than he was about himself. But he had a plan. He thought this was the logical thing to do, but he didn't let logic just totally rule him. He thought on it. And, you know, this is total speculation on my part. But I believe that I certainly know that Mary was a very godly woman. She was picked by the Lord to mother the Messiah. And she had found favor in the sight of God. She was blessed above all women is what it says over in uh, Luke chapter 1. And so I know that Mary was a very godly person. And for Joseph to have chosen her, you would suspect that if you're going to pick a very godly woman, that it's because you are a very godly man and you admire that trait. 
All of these things that are being said about Joseph would lead you to believe that Joseph himself was a very godly man. And once again, this shows that even though he may have had feelings, and even though it may have looked like that there was only one course of action, instead of just making a knee-jerk decision, he thought on these things. He pondered the path of his feet. And because of it, man, there was great things that happened. You know, again, um, I don't I don't know how to say what would have, could have, should have happened if Joseph would have done this and all these kind of things. I guess it's possible that Jesus could have been born uh, to Mary without a father, without, uh, well, it certainly was without the physical act of a father, but I mean without even a man in the home to take care of things. I guess God could have worked it out. I don't know if this could have happened. I don't, I don't know. Maybe the Lord through his wisdom knew what Joseph's response would be, knew that when he heard the truth that he would respond to it. I don't, I don't understand all of that, but just avoiding, um, the, um, thoughts, you know, that everything is just inevitable and that we have a part to play in what God is doing. It looks like that Joseph, if he would have just made a knee-jerk reaction, if he would have operated out of emotion, that he could have exempted himself from one of the greatest positions that any man had ever occupied in the world. What a responsibility to provide and to protect and to take care of the Messiah, to be an influence in his life. Well, he could have missed it if he would have just operated on emotion. And I know that this is not unusual. I talk to people all of the time, especially in the area of marriage, when it comes to something that is a passion, love. And when somebody hurts you and something happens, I have talked to so many people that just make a decision because they're hurt and because they are so self-centered, they're only thinking about themselves. They are going to do something out of vengeance. They're going to do something out of spite. They're going to say things that they wish, wish they hadn't have said. And on and on it goes. And you know what? That's just a recipe for disaster. We see in Joseph a tremendous example of how we're supposed to be. Maybe some of you listening to this tape have actually had your mate be unfaithful to you. And did you make a decision? Did you just divorce them? Did you let it go without even seeking the Lord and wondering, God, what would you have me to do? Did you just feel like that because something had happened that you were justified in whatever you wanted to do and you didn't seek the Lord's counsel on it? And it doesn't have to be just in the area of marriage. It could be anything. Same thing could happen in a job situation. Somebody stab you in the back, and so you just fight back. You've got it set in your mind that you got to claw and fight your way. Did you consult God on that? You know, if you don't, I guarantee you, logic or emotion will lead you down a wrong path eventually. You need a word from God. You need to know what God wants you to do. You know, a very good friend of mine, Mike, Failour and his wife, Bonnie. In my estimation, they are just some of the, uh, I mean, they're a trophy for the grace of God. But Mike was pastoring a church, a successful church. He was seeing people saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was seeing people healed. They had crutches and wheelchairs that people come out of. And yet Mike fell into sexual sin. And when he finally confessed this to his wife, of course, Bonnie was hurt. But you know what? Bonnie is a great example. I believe just exactly like what Joseph did right here. I believe that 
That's the way that Bonnie responded. Or you could say the way Bonnie responded. I believe that's the way Joseph responded. Bonnie, of course, was hurt. She cried about it. But I mean, I don't remember exactly, but I remember it was the very first night she heard about it. If I remember correctly, it was within an hour or even less. After she was hurt, she went to the Lord and she thought, God, what do you want me to do? Her first reaction was divorce. Her first reaction was, well, he's broken the marriage covenant. I'm free to do this. And according to scripture, did you know what? She was free to divorce him. But that's not necessarily, the scripture doesn't say you have to divorce a person that has been unfaithful to you. It just says that you are free to do it. And so anyway, she prayed about it. And within an hour, the Lord spoke to her and said, Bonnie, I have forgiven you of your sins. Can you forgive Mike of his sins? And anyway, she decided to forgive him. And within an hour, the issue was settled. That didn't mean that the marriage was just perfect and backed as if nothing had happened. It took years for Mike to regain trust, etc. But this man, I mean, repented completely. He is absolutely restored. He's back pastoring. God has blessed him. I don't know anybody with any more integrity than Mike. He's a tremendous example. As a matter of fact, we held a marriage seminar together one time, and I remember Bonnie got up and introduced Mike and said, I want to introduce to you the man who I respect the most of any man on the earth, the person that I feel has the greatest integrity of any man. Now, that's quite a statement coming from their situation. But see, Bonnie was an example of what I believe that Joseph did right here. She had feelings. She had thoughts. She considered some things, but ultimately she thought on those things. And she asked God what his opinion was. And because of it, they were able to save that marriage. Their kids have been blessed. Their kids got a tremendous example of how to overcome when you have failed. And Mike today is a man that he would not have been if Bonnie would have just thrown him on the trash heap. Now, again, I'm not saying you have to do it that way, but I tell you, this is wise. And Joseph, this just really impresses me. Joseph was a godly man. You know, the focus of this story is Jesus and his miraculous birth and his ministry. But the people that were involved here, especially Joseph and Mary, what a great couple this was. And these were godly people. This shows that they had a lot of character built into them, and that does not happen accidentally. I tell you what, there were reasons for this. In Well, let me back up into verse 18. Here's a point I didn't make. In verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now this word found, this is very interesting. The word found literally means, I'm not going to try and pronounce this Greek word, but it literally means to find literally or figuratively. And it was translated perceived in Acts 23:29. It was translated saw in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. What this is saying is that Mary was discovered to be pregnant. In other words, this is saying that she didn't tell him that she was pregnant, but it was discovered. As a matter of fact, the Message Bible uses this exact word discovered to translate this verse. And so here is a major point. You may not have thought about this, but Mary, when the angel appeared to her, unto her in Luke chapter 1, gave her this pronouncement, and then she humbled herself and said, So be it unto me according to thy word. It says that immediately that she uh, departed 
and went in to the hill country of Judea to see her cousin Elizabeth, who the angel had told her about. This is in Luke chapter 1. And in verse 38 is where she humbled herself, and she said, Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. The very next verse, verse 39, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of of Judah. Now, it doesn't say that she left the same hour. It doesn't say she left the same day. It said she left in those days. And so there could be some lapse of time. It would be possible. I cannot say beyond any shadow of a doubt, that she didn't tell Joseph about the miraculous encounter with the angel and all of these things. I can't, I can't prove that. But this word that is used in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, where it says that she was found or discovered with child, certainly implies that. And here is some logic that I think this is this is a tremendous truth. This is one of the great lessons to learn from this Christmas story. Just think about that if you were a young girl, most people believe that Mary was somewhere around 17 years old, and if you were a young girl, you'd had the angel of Gabriel appear to you and tell you that you were going to give birth to the Messiah, and it wasn't going to be through the normal channels of having a physical relationship with the man. It was going to be a virgin birth. And it doesn't say that it happened at that exact moment while the angel was talking to her. It could have been that night, the next day, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and the word was actually conceived. You know, she went through this experience. How would you tell your fiancé that you had an angel appear to you? Number one, most people don't have angels appear to them, and so immediately there's skepticism about this. The second thing is that you are going to give birth to the Messiah. You know, most people would instantly say, well, who do you think you are? I mean, most people would just immediately reject that. And then on top of all of that, it's not going to be through my union with you, Joseph. It's going to be a virgin birth. You know what? Those are three incredible, incredible things. How would you tell somebody like that? I believe that all of us would be absolutely stumped about how to go about it. As a matter of fact, instead of being effective in convincing anybody, it's very possible that you could make it nearly impossible to believe. You could make it harder by your stumbling around and stuff. So here's what I think. Because of this use of the word found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, I believe that Mary received this encounter with the angel conceived the the Lord Jesus in her womb, and then she just left to go visit Elizabeth. And I don't believe she told Joseph. Now, because they were engaged, and it was kind of the same as being married, as we can see in this passage of Scripture, I'm not saying that she didn't tell him that I'm going to be gone to my cousin Elizabeth. She's uh, had... had uh, She's in her sixth month of pregnancy. This is a special thing. She's an old woman that we thought would never have a child. I've got to go. She may have told Joseph something, but there is no indication that she told Joseph about these miraculous things. The way Matthew states it, it was when she came back after being gone for three months that it was observable that she was pregnant. She was showing. 
And that's when Joseph found out about it. That is what these passages of Scripture infer. Again, this is not the major point that is being made, and so I don't. I'm not going to say this emphatically. But for my, um, you know, for for me, I believe that that's the way it is. That's what it looks like. And here are some tremendous things out of this. This shows a tremendous trust on Mary's part in God. Now, if this would have been one of us, again, just put yourself in this situation, you would have immediately thought about, man, this is wonderful that I've been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. This is an awesome privilege. Nobody else has ever had anything like this happen. You could have seen that. But you know what? Most of us would immediately thought, but I love Joseph. What about my relationship with Joseph? This is going to cost me my marriage. Man, I could be shamed. She could have even been killed. Now, I believe that just because of her faith in the Lord and the fact that she knew that this was going to come to pass, she probably was believing God that she wouldn't be stoned, but it wasn't a given. It wasn't It wasn't just automatic. She had to believe God for that. But you know what? I think it shows tremendous uh, integrity and maturity on Mary's part that she was just going to let God work this out. And here is a great lesson. Boy, this is something that if you could get this, I promise you, this would change your life. This is contrary to the way that most people function. Most people try and become the Holy Spirit. Most people try and do the work that was assigned to the Holy Spirit to do. It says in John chapter 16 that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin. And yet, how many times have we stepped in when we've seen somebody else do something against us or do something to themselves or something that you think is wrong? How many times have we stepped in and begin to start rebuking and criticizing and exposing, trying to convince them of their sin, trying to change people? I tell you what, you I don't know if you're connecting with what I'm saying, but if you're breathing, you've done this. This is a common human trait. And it's basically just unbelief. It's our lack of trust and reliance upon God. We want to do it ourselves. Those of you that are married, I can guarantee you that there has been some time or another that your mate has not done something that you want them to do, maybe against you or just in general, the way they represent themselves, the way they dress, the way they look, the way they do this or something else, and you try and convict them and you try and change them And you have messed up the whole thing. You know, I see this especially a lot in women trying to change their husbands. I don't know if that's because I'm biased. I don't know if it's because that's really true that women do it more than men. I don't know what it is, but I'm saying in my experience, I have dealt with hundreds, possibly thousands of women who have come to me And they are not liking the way that their husband doesn't seek the Lord. They want him to take more spiritual leadership in the home. They want him to do this. They want him to do that. They want him to pray with the family. They want him to do all of these things. And so they uh, infringe on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They don't trust God to deal with him. They get in there and they're trying to change him. And I can tell you this, women, those of you that are listening to this tape, you may not like this, but it is a fact of life. Men have an ego, and certainly that's blown out of proportion, and certainly, uh, you know, this isn't an excuse to just be carnal and to do things, but even though it's it's misused, 
and overused in most men. I believe that God made men with a desire to succeed, with a desire to win, a competitive type spirit, much more so than a woman. And I believe it's because that that's suited to the man being the breadwinner, being the protector. You know, I think that it should be that if somebody breaks into the house, it's the man that gets the ball bat or the gun and goes and defends the home instead of the woman. The man should not be hiding behind the woman. The woman should be hiding behind the man. And there's scriptures to that effect in Ephesians chapter 5. And so I believe that God made man with that kind of a personality. Now, again, it's been abused. And because of that, there are these macho men that are just nothing but egotists. And and, uh, there's certainly abuses of it. I'm not going to teach on marriage right now. But here's my point, that if you go up to a man, And if you begin to start criticizing him, if you run him down, there is something inside of the man that he does not want to be henpecked. He does not want the woman to rule and dominate him. And I believe that God put that. It's like a homing device. God intended for the man to be the head of the home. That doesn't mean that he puts the wife under his foot. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, you're supposed to submit yourselves one to another. So there is a godly submission of a man, even to a woman. If the woman is right, I don't think it's unmanly for a man to receive that. But I'm saying that the natural tendency is that the man doesn't want to be just forced into doing something. So when a woman begins to gripe, nag, peck at a man and criticize him and tear him down and you aren't the spiritual leader. You should be praying. You should be studying the word. You should do that. You should do all of these things. I tell you, you've got natural tendencies, natural personalities that are going to be working against you. Even if the man knew he was wrong, unless he has a lot of character, the man is going to resist doing what you've nagged him to do just because he knows it's not right for you to be dominating and controlling and and browbeating him. And there is going to be a resistance towards it. So I've had a lot of women come to me and they say, my husband doesn't do this and he doesn't do that. And I've been praying. I've been trying to make him and I've talked to him and I leave the Bible open around here to the scripture and I underline it, want him to read it. And I leave these tracks and these tapes and he won't listen to it. And you know what I tell women often is just leave him alone. Let him go. Let the Holy Spirit deal with him. You know, most men know that they that they need to do things differently. Most men uh, realize sooner or later that they are too carnal and stuff. And, you know, women just tend to be more sensitive to the Lord. Now, that's certainly there's exceptions to that. I can think of a number of people who that the man is more spiritual than the woman but I'm saying it's not unusual for the woman to be more spiritual. Most men are aware of it. And, they, and uh, you know what? If you leave them alone, they can eventually come to these conclusions and let God deal with them. But here's my point. If you are yelling at them and saying all of these things, and even if you are right in what you are saying, how are they going to know that it's God speaking to them and not you? How are they going to know when they have this thought about, you know, I should be studying the word. How are they going to know that that's God prodding them when you've said it to them every minute of every day? You know what? That confuses the situation. Look at it this way. If Mary had have talked to Joseph and tried to tell him, now look, this is a virgin birth. I had an angel appear unto me and this is of the Holy Spirit. It is of God. I have not been unfaithful. 
If Mary had have tried to explain all of these things, then when the dream came to Joseph, you know what? It would have been easy for Joseph to say, well, I had this dream, but you know what? That's because Mary's been telling me this day and night and trying to defend herself, and it would have been easier for him to dismiss this. You've had dreams, and you understand that a dream is a dream. You dream all kinds of things, and not every single dream is from God. Now, I've had some dreams that were definitely from God. But you know what? It's really a matter of faith because I've had a lot of other dreams that were just weird about me doing all kinds of things. I'm sure that you have to. And you have to evaluate it and wonder, is this really God or was this my pizza from the night before? What is it that caused this? Was this really God speaking to me? And see, if Mary had been uh, just talking to Joseph and trying to defend herself and hounding him and saying, I'm innocent, honest, and if she'd have been doing all of these things, I believe that it would have really clouded the waters so much that he couldn't have seen clearly to recognize that this was God. But because Mary, apparently, there is no indication in Scripture that she ever told Joseph about her encounter with the Lord. There is no indication. And again, this word in Matthew 1.18 to say that she was found with child of the Holy Ghost really implies that she didn't tell him about this. This is the first time he had seen it, observed it, and she didn't defend herself. She didn't try and change Joseph. She didn't try and make him believe. She allowed the Holy Spirit to do his work. Man, now that takes a lot of character. You know, there have been a many, many times that I've had people criticize me, and I won't go into great depth. I could give you dozens of examples of this, but people have criticized me, said I was of the devil, I was a cult like Jim Jones. I've had I've had terrible things done about me. Sometimes it's probably because I didn't use wisdom in what I said. Other times it was just totally unfounded. There was no justification. It's just the devil. And you know what? I have learned from Romans chapter 12, it says, Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. I will repay. I have learned not to defend myself. I have learned not to try and justify myself. And some of you may not uh, believe that, but I, it is true. I had a uh, very well-known minister. I was in that town holding a meeting, and because I was there, people in their church were going to it, and they got up on Sunday morning. My staff was there at their church, we held a Sunday, we held a Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon meeting. And on Sunday morning, they went to visit this church. And the minister got up and said that I was a cult. I was the slickest cult they'd ever heard of since Jim Jones. They're a national minister on television, etc. And they blasted me, said I was of the devil. They encouraged their people to burn the books, throw them away, get rid of the tapes. And um, I know that it's true. And I've talked to them since then, held meetings with them. And you know what? That afternoon, people came and told me, I mean, bunches of people right before the service, do you know what this person said about you? And I could have got up and defended myself. But if I had, I believe Satan would have won because instead of me preaching the gospel, I would have been defending myself. So I just ministered what I was already going to minister and didn't even acknowledge it, didn't even say anything about it. I have blessed this person. I have sent money to them, offerings to them, thousands of dollars. I've ministered with them on pulpits. I've done things. And you know what? There is zero animosity in my heart. And you know what? That's just the way I am. I'm letting the Holy Spirit do its work. 
Now, with this individual that I'm talking about, they haven't changed yet. Now, the mate of this person came to me, and in effect, they didn't apologize, but they they just came to me and they said, you know, sometimes this person gets a little overboard and a little zealous and, you know, just have mercy on us. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it hadn't changed, but they haven't told me about it. But in many other cases where I've responded the same way, the Holy Spirit has defended me and turned things around in ways that I never could have. There was a man who actually had told people I was of the devil and came against me very strong, and yet every time he'd go to a person's house, somebody would say, man, have you heard of Andrew Womack? I got saved through them. I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I was healed. This happened. And this guy got tired of hearing it, and then he was at a full gospel businessman's convention where the man who got me started in ministry, Joe Nay, was the speaker. And Joe got up and started every service with having me walk up to the front and introduce me and say, you are so blessed to have Andrew Womack here in Colorado Springs. And he would just say nice things about me. Finally, this man at the end of this meeting got up in front of hundreds of people and got down on his knees and grabbed my feet and apologized. And this was the first I'd ever heard about it. I didn't know what was going on. But you know what? The Holy Spirit defended me and and dealt with things. And this man repented. We became friends. And you know what? God put it together. I could give you dozens of examples of that. So the point that I'm saying is, you are not the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons that people don't respond better is because even if you're saying the right thing, they get it confused. They think it's you that is bringing this conviction on them instead of the Holy Spirit. Whereas if you would just be quiet and let the Holy Spirit do his work, then when he speaks, this has to be God because it's so out from left field. There's no way. They can't credit it to you and the fact that you've been talking to them and doing all these things. I hope you get the point that I'm making. You know, I've learned this in my marriage, and again, I'm not perfect in this. There's times that I blow it, but recently I I mentioned something in Bible college. I was talking about my wife, and somebody said, well, you know, she doesn't come into the Bible college. She doesn't say very much. And I said, my wife just feels called to be my wife. She doesn't feel called to ministry She's in the ministry with me, but she doesn't want to be behind a pulpit. She doesn't want to do these things. There's nothing wrong with that. And so they were, and uh, they went on and asked some questions. I said, look, my wife, she could be a hermit if she wanted to be. I mean, she could stay uh, at our place for days and never see a person and just be completely content. She's not a real people person. And anyway, after I was teaching, some of the students came up and said, boy, we want to pray with you and agree that your wife is going to change and she's going to do all these things. And I said, I won't do it. I said, that's witchcraft. I said, I, God told me to love my wife. He didn't tell me to change my wife. There's nothing wrong with my wife. You know, not every woman has to be a Gloria Copeland. I love Gloria Copeland. I enjoy her ministry and it's great for her. But, you know, not every woman has to be that. We stereotype people. And I tell you, if I was to get in and try and make Jamie be exactly as I am, you know what, uh, it would mess up our marriage. I'm the kind that I would let people impose on me 24 hours a day. I'd have them coming over to my house. I'd never get any rest and stuff. Jamie's the opposite, and together we make a, a pair that are pretty well balanced. But if Jamie was just like me, we'd be totally out of balance. I'm extreme. I'm over the top. Jamie is just as organized and... I mean, we are opposites in a lot of ways, but together we really do fit. 
I hope you get what I'm saying. I am not Jamie's Holy Spirit. I was not called to change Jamie and to make her into something else. And this is one reason so many marriages have problems is because you don't love your mate the way they are. You love them the way you want them to be and you are pushing and shoving and your mate's carnality is rising up and rebelling and he, and they aren't even able to hear the Holy Spirit because the, your words are so loud in their ears they can't hear what the Holy Spirit's saying. Joseph, I believe, found out by observation that Mary was pregnant. This means that Mary didn't even try and explain it. What was the use? And to complicate the situation, right after she had this experience with the Lord, she went and stayed with her cousin Elizabeth for three months. So when she came back, she was three months pregnant. She had been gone someplace else out of the watchful eye of Joseph. Do you know what? That just added fuel to the fire of jealousy. It gave very good opportunity for her to have been unfaithful, had some relationship with the man, and it complicated the situation even more. And yet she didn't try and justify herself. Joseph had the Lord speak unto him in a dream and tell him not to fear to take Mary, his wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then he quoted the uh, prophecy from Isaiah 7:14, and it says, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. Again, I believe that this probably would not have played out this way if Mary would have been like many of us, and just in there fighting for herself, trying to convince Joseph on her own. Instead, she was letting the Holy Spirit do his work. And I'm sure that when Joseph came and told her what had happened, she was probably able to confirm it. And I'm sure that eventually all of these things were shared, and it was a great confirmation to Joseph. Again, did you know that a dream is something that happens while you're asleep, and it is not so obvious that there is zero doubt. Joseph had to operate in this by faith. Joseph had to take this by faith. And what a confirmation when he comes and talks to Mary and finds out that, man, the angel had appeared unto her. And this would have been just such a great confirmation of all of these things. And so, anyway, this is a major deal right here. This is part of the Christmas story that I think a lot of people miss. And yet it's very, very important. The lesson I get from this is that you need to let the Holy Spirit do his work. You make a very poor Holy Spirit. And if you would just love your mate or love your boss or love the people that you're, are your neighbors that rub you the wrong way, instead of you trying to control and manipulate and dominate and make things come to pass, let the Holy Spirit do it. Let the Holy Spirit take care of things. Now, there are some situations where you're in a position of authority and you need to take your authority and deal with problems. A boss, a pastor of a church, minister in a situation. There, There's things, and I'm not by any means saying that that's out of uh, line, but I'm saying that there are many times that we just interfere with the Holy Spirit. We don't let him do his work. We want to get in and help him, and that just doesn't work. You know, there's a scripture in James chapter 1, that says the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Sometimes you think, well, no, I, you know, it would really be good if I got mad and let this person know what I think. A little dose of condemnation would be good. 
But the Bible says that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You will never get a godly end out of you being angry. And it doesn't mean that you never correct. It doesn't mean that you don't discipline your children. It doesn't mean that you don't deal with problems at work if you are the one in authority. But, you know, your wrath is not going to get it done. Wrath is never the answer to those things. And you just need to remember this. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. Boy, that is a powerful, powerful truth. Real quickly, while I have some time on this tape, let me jump over to when the wise man came to see Jesus. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 2. And it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now let me just make a couple of statements. I hadn't got time to go into great depth on this. But this is the only passage of scripture that reports this. Matthew chapter 2. It never says that there were three wise men, and it never says that they were kings. That is all tradition. A lot of it comes from a song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And we've grown up singing that, and that just shows us how that traditions, songs, have much more importance in most people's lives than what the Bible does. That is just a religious tradition, and I don't believe it's accurate at all. It doesn't say that there were three You know, we use this term magi when we refer to these men, and that comes from uh, the Greek word that was used here. It's not the exact same thing as magi, but that's the way that we, many people refer to it. And what that word referred to, it referred to astrologers, and eventually it came to be the priest and and, uh, referring to just people who were uh, wise men, people who were counselors, people who were invested with wisdom. And stuff, and so these were people from the east, apparently from Persia, and they came to worship the Lord. It says that they have seen his star in the east. Now, here's another point that is very important, I believe. I've often wondered about why would Persians think that the appearance of a star, regardless of how special or how unique it was, why would that tip them off that the king of the Jews was born? Now, that's that's really puzzled me, and I've thought about this. Well, the answer that some people would give is that they were astrologers, and astrology can predict events, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is not a godly principle. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches about people who use astrology and signs in the stars to predict and to do things. No, 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 that is not right, and that God, this wasn't Satan using astrology to bring people to worship the Lord. So I knew that that wasn't the answer. And, you know, as I thought about this, Daniel was one of the children of Israel that was taken into captivity in Babylonian captivity, which later Persia took over. Matter of fact, Daniel was there the night that Darius, king of the Persians, came in and conquered. um, I forgot the uh, king's name. It was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the one where the handwriting was on the wall and Daniel interpreted that. And he was there the night that the Persians conquered and took over, and Daniel served under Darius. Matter of fact, I believe it was Darius that was the one who had him thrown in the lion's den, and that was the king of Persia. So anyway, Daniel had become so famous. He was delivered from the lion's den. The three Hebrew children were delivered from the fiery furnace, 
and Daniel was promoted to be the head over all of the wise men of Persia, over all of these magi, these astrologers, I mean, these uh, priests, and they used to be astrologers, but just the wise men, the counsel to the king. And Daniel is the one who in Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 10 prophesied the coming of the Messiah. And in Daniel chapter 9, he was very specific, even down to the years that it would be until the Messiah would be born. So here's what I believe happened. The reason that these wise men saw the appearance of this star and interpreted it to mean that this was the birth of the Jewish Messiah was because Daniel had already prophesied that. He had left his writings. He had instructed the Persian uh, people, and they knew that this was the time that Daniel spoke of, and I believe that that's the reason they associated the appearance of this star with the birth of Jesus. Now, that says a lot. That says the influence that a godly man had on a pagan culture even hundreds of years after his birth. He was so famous, so well-respected, that hundreds of years later, people were still following his prophecies. Pagan people, not even people that were of his culture, they recognized the power and the authority that was on his life. Man, that's powerful. And these... um, these uh, wise men had to travel from Persia to Israel. That was over a thousand miles, I believe it was. And the way they had to travel, you couldn't just go straight across because there was desert. And so they had to travel a roundabout way. Their journey could have taken quite a period of time. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to have time to go into great explanation. You can study this out on your own. But when the wise man refused to come back to Herod and report the way he had asked him to, Herod went and killed all the children from two years old and under according to the time that he had inquired of the wise man when the star appeared. Now that implies that Herod was trying to make sure that he caught this child who was born king of the Jews. And because of the time that the... um, Priests, I mean, these uh, wise men had to travel from Persia and stuff. It could have been up to two years period of time. And to further verify that, when they finally found the child, it says in verse 11, this is Matthew 2, 11, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. The, the uh, wise man did not go into the manger where the shepherds were. They went into the house. And another thing, right after they left, it says that Joseph was warned of God in a dream that they that he should depart and go into Egypt. And it was because of what the Lord said. And it implies it happened right after the wise man left. Now, if that's true, which the scripture is true, and Jesus left immediately after the departure of the wise man, then that means that this was in Nazareth that this took place. And the reason I say that is because when Jesus was brought into the temple, this is in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. It says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, this talking about Mary, They brought him to Jerusalem to present to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, 
and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that's a quotation from Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, talking about the purification of a woman after the birth of a child. After a male child, it had to take place 40 days after the birth of the male child. And while they were there for this purification, which was 40 days after the birth of Jesus, it says that Simeon came in and prophesied. Then Anna came in and prophesied. And then it says in verse 39, Luke 2:39, And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And that was immediately after this presentation in the temple. And then the wise man came into the house at Nazareth because the next morning after the wise men presented their gifts, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fled to Egypt. They didn't have time to go to the temple and present Jesus and do all of these things. So here's just some more religious tradition that we have. People preach that these uh, wise men were three. I don't believe they were. They preached that they were kings. They weren't. They were wise men who were basically operating from the prophecy of Daniel and had traveled uh, anywhere from a year to two years, uh, lapsed time, and um, they... They left and went back a different way, and Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fled into Egypt, and so the appearance of the wise men did not take place in Bethlehem. It took place in Nazareth, contrary to what a lot of people believe. And I, really, the only reason for bringing this up, it doesn't change anything about the miraculous birth of Jesus, but it serves to illustrate how we've become so bound by tradition and even though there can be some good things associated with tradition, tradition and doctrines of man make the word of God of none effect, and we need to guard against this. You need to have the right um, perspective on all of this. And also another thing is, you know, it says that when they came to Jerusalem, in verse 3, this is Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with them. Now, why would all Jerusalem be troubled if three men came? You know, that wouldn't make that big of a deal. Jerusalem was a large metropolitan city. I mean, there was lots of people living there. I don't know the numbers, but certainly it was in the hundreds of thousands. And three men entering the city, even if they were kings, wouldn't have made that big of a deal. I think it's more probable that there was multitude of people associated with them. If these people were wealthy, as is implied by the fact that they gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and frankincense and myrrh at that time were even valued more than gold. These were very, very wealthy gifts. And for them to come and bring all of this, they may have had an entire caravan. It may have been one of the largest entrances of, of a caravan into Jerusalem that people had ever seen. And people were wondering what all of this was about. And also, this would make another point. They gave, it says that they opened up their treasures. When they came into the house, this is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. It says, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child. Notice they didn't see the infant, but he was a young child by this time, possibly between one and two years of age, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures... 
They presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They opened their treasures. Apparently, they had treasure chests. They had to have other people. These guys weren't carrying these things on their back. This was a large caravan. It was a large group of people. And you know what that also means? If there weren't just three of them, which it's very possible that there could have been a bunch of them. Matter of fact, one person I heard talk about this say that these, these type of people always traveled in groups of at least 40 or 50. There could have been 40 or 50 of these wise men who were bringing their treasures. They had to be pretty rich people to spend a year traveling, you know, just take off from what they're doing and spend a year traveling and then a year returning. That's two years out of their life. That takes quite a bit of money. And then they presented gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Just because there were three gifts enumerated, that doesn't mean that there were only three people so there could have been multitude of people presenting these gifts, and that means that the money that Jesus received through these wise men was enough to support him and last him and his family throughout his life. This dispels some of the common thinking that Jesus was poor, that Jesus didn't have anything. I hadn't got time to teach on all of this, but when Jesus said foxes of uh, you know, have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. That wasn't him saying that he was homeless, that he was sleeping under a bridge, that he was poor, that he went around begging. That is not what that's saying. He was telling a man who wanted to follow him. He says, are you sure you want to do this? Do you realize I sleep in a different place every night? Do you realize I'm an itinerant? I didn't say that he didn't have money. As a matter of fact, he had his personal treasurer, and he was used to giving away money. And uh, there were women that followed him from Luke chapter 8, I believe it is, saying that they were rich women who ministered unto him of their substance. Jesus had money. He was not a beggar. And I believe that Joseph and Mary were supplied by God through these wise men who brought these gifts. And it, and it supplied them with more than enough money to take a trip into uh, Egypt, to live there for a number of years and then come back. I would suspect that, uh, you know, they were just well taken care of. Man, there's there's a lot of things that are different than the way most people have seen this. But anyway, on this tape, we've covered a lot of different things, but probably the number one thing I wanted to leave with you is just this fact of Mary and Joseph, the way they interacted with each other. Joseph was a man of integrity. He didn't make a knee-jerk reaction. He didn't respond out of emotion or just logic. He got a word from God. And Mary showed tremendous integrity not to try and be the Holy Spirit and convince Joseph on her own. She let God speak to him. And I tell you, God can speak to people and defend you and take care of things much, much better than what you can do. You need to let God be God. You make a poor Holy Spirit. I tell you, if you could learn that from this lesson and meditate on that, every time you hear this Christmas story, think of this and apply it to your life and just take an inventory. God, am I letting you convict people and take care of things or am I in the way? And I tell you, if you would use this as a reminder, I believe that would serve you well and you would be much better off if you let the Holy Spirit do his work. 